0: Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I'm Carrie Pefley and I teach in the philosophy department here at Bethel. And as usual, I'm Anne Marie Koistra, and I teach in the history department. And today we're joined by Michael Gross, who is a theologian and has taught with a humanities program for 12 years. And so he's going to talk a little bit about the theology and, and other things that we talk about during interim.
1: Plus, Carrie's going to throw him a curveball on Henry V. So That's right. stay tuned. Michael Gross, thank you for joining us here at Bookish at Bethel. And um, we'd love for you to maybe say a little bit about yourself. Who are you and what do folks need to know about you?
2: Well, uh, my name is Michael Gross. This is my 12th year teaching at Bethel. Um, I went to Bethel in the late 90s and I took the predecessor course that I now teach. Uh, which used to be called Reading and Writing in the Western Tradition, and that morphed into humanities. Uh, I studied theology, went to Princeton Seminary um, with a couple of the other professors who teach here.
1: So. And uh, do you remember who your section leader was for this um, precursor to humanities, too? Just oh, because I'm curious.
2: I don't.
1: So not, not anyone memorable then, huh?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that... Uh, I had Mark Reisner for one of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, Who used to teach here? uh, Paul Reisner's brother. Mm -hmm. Uh Um, Yeah.
0: That's fine. That's fine. There we go. Did Dan Ritchie teach in that program? He sure did. Okay. Yeah. And
1: so listeners will be familiar with Dan Ritchie from another podcast where he gave Mm -hmm. us the preview of Humanities 2. So you're teaching in Humanities 2 with us this January, and we're happy to have you. Mm -hmm. So we've just completed the kind of theology-heavy portion of the class, and you've just mentioned you've got some training in the subject at Princeton. Do you want to give our listeners a little sense of the kinds of theologians that students will have read for the first part of Humanities II?
2: Sure. So Humanities II focuses on the Reformation, and the humanities program in general uh, favors reading primary sources. And so we get to read a lot of really fun uh, stuff, uh, Luther and Erasmus—they have a big debate about free will, uh, an issue that still uh, Christians are debating. We get to read a little bit from the Anabaptist tradition, some from the Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, so we we read quite a bit. Also, uh, John Calvin, mm-hmm. who's a second generation reformer, we read him. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of good stuff.
1: A lot of good mm-hmm. stuff. And Carrie, feel free to interrupt me, nope, but I am curious. So. Could you? Do you feel comfortable saying anything about your religious background?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I'm Presbyterian. Okay. Uh, so my heritage goes back to John Calvin. Okay. Um,
1: yeah. And so do you find yourself kind of resonating with the Calvin reading or?
2: I resonate most probably with the Erasmus reading. Okay. Um, and Erasmus was a humanist. He is curious. He... Is very humble, mm-hmm. um, and he seems to uh, want to really thoroughly explore topics, um, and he's a little bit less dogmatic, so he's the one I, I tend to resonate with. Mm-hmm.
0: And Carrie is nodding. I'm nodding because I feel the same way, and I also am Presbyterian, go to a Presbyterian church, although it's one that is a Presbyterian that wants to be Anglican, so I'm like a Presbyterian with an identity crisis What do you anyway. mean by that? It's
1: Presbyterian and wants to become Anglican. So,
0: it was founded by a guy who wanted to reconcile the Scottish Presbyterian Church with the Anglican Church. Okay. And so it's very, litur- more even more liturgical than your run-of-the-mill PCUSA church. Mm-hmm. Um, uses a little bit more from the Book of Common Prayer, mm-hmm. things like that, but then is still reformed in theology, um, but has a really huge focus on the arts and liturgy in a sure. way that, yeah, so it's a again, it doesn't fit Calvin's view of a church.
1: Well, and since we haven't had a chance on this podcast to talk about Erasmus, and since you were nodding affirmatively while Michael Gross is saying, oh, I I really like talking about Erasmus. I like reading Erasmus. Maybe do you want to say a little bit about why you gravitate toward Erasmus?
0: Sure. I mean, some of the things that Michael said resonate for me as well. He's very humble. Um, I like the fact that he is well versed in church tradition as a medievalist. He's drawing, right? I'm, I'm, loving the fact that he draws on the tradition that I'm very familiar with is tapping into actually one of my favorite, um, references that Erasmus makes is to, um, Scotus Mm. Duns Scotus, who is a 12th, 12th, 13th century, um, philosopher. Talking about whether or not all of our acts are necessitated actually has this great quote where he says, you know, I wish that everyone who thought that everything happened necessarily and there was no free will would be burned until they admitted that there was some possibility of them not being burned. I'm um, just sort of like, I'm so frustrated with these people who say there's that there's necessity to everything. Clearly, there's free will. So I love that Erasmus even makes references to those old philosophical conversations that have been going on. But yeah, he is – he's just – fun to read. Maybe not as entertaining, not as mean as Luther.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, and I found myself because of Carrie's influence on the course and our reading of Aristotle, um, really talking a lot about uh Erasmus' response to Luther is, well, Luther, you're really covering one aspect of human beings. But there's also this other aspect of human beings where, in fact, we do um, have this idea that we're created in the image of God. And as Aristotle and um, Aquinas in particular note, like we actually have some resonance mm-hmm. where, in fact, we maybe have part of us that are sort of engineered to turn to God. And I definitely pointed that out, like what is our understanding of what human beings are? by way of Erasmus. Mm -hmm.
2: And I think, you know, in that debate they have, and and in the fact that Luther's separating from the Roman Catholic Church, um, there are clear reasons for that, clear catalysts uh, that we can look back and appreciate. Um, But it, it did begin something that still continues, which is division after division after division. And so I do appreciate Erasmus' In his attempt to reform the Roman Catholic Church, but also focus on unity
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and I think Protestants you know they they still have to um, kind of reckon with the fact that when disagreements occur, very often the conclusion is to divide, mm-hmm. uh, which goes against uh, one of the tenets of of the gospel. Mm-hmm. so uh, Protestants do have something to uh, contend with there.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think that's right.
0: One of the things that some of my students were talking about in our seminar as we talked about this sometimes Protestant divisiveness is the fact that the news recently has been about divisions in the Methodist tradition happening right now and the covenant tradition, um, some fragments that we're still continuing to see denominations break apart.
1: Yeah, I think some of my students were a little scandalized that I said, well, every week in my church, we pray that the church will be united. And I think they were like, whoa, like, mm-hmm. almost like, well, don't you all do this too, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so I'm glad that you brought that up about – I mean, my my husband sometimes refers to it as the choose-your-own-religion religion of <laughs> Protestantism, mm-hmm. which – Well,
2: and there's that right. great song, they will know we are Christians by our love by our love, right? <laughs> and so uh, sometimes when you read the Reformers um, – when you read Erasmus, it seems like that is very much on his mind, mm-hmm. uh, and when you read some of the others, it seems like it's not. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah,
1: for Luther, it's truth. Yeah, nothing matters except the truth, mm-hmm. and for him, it doesn't matter what the cost is. Yes. And I do,
0: I did appreciate reading Calvin a little bit more this time than the last time I taught this, Mm -hmm. just realizing how much he at least is willing to hold things in tension. Mm -hmm. And so he is really thinking a lot about the love of God, Mm -hmm. as well as the truth and what scripture does tell us. Um, I like that tension. And he,
2: uh, I like that he doesn't play the mystery card too early. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are mysteries that we will not be able to know. And there's a lot of them but calvin writes quite a bit that it's our duty to know everything that's been revealed and what's been revealed well scripture is is the source of revelation so we should plunge into the depths mm-hmm. have the hard conversations the hard study mm-hmm. and seek to learn and grow and uh and know but then once we reach the limit to what scripture's revealed we we have to be humble mm-hmm. uh and say oh the all the depths. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, and I pointed out to my students that there is this deep emphasis on the need for a Christian education because of this uh, importance of scripture and being able to read scripture and to understand as well as we can. And there's that great line in the part that we read where he talks about setting up the schools and the importance of a liberal arts Mm -hmm. education. I definitely pointed that out to my students, as well as the fact that he thought The girls should also receive an education. Hey, yo. Right? So separate, sure, but at least he actually says, I mean, this is the kind of um, leveling that we've been sort of talking about in terms of the Protestant Reformation, that it does lead to a greater view of what human beings are capable of doing, Mm -hmm. and that, in fact, even the ordinary person should be taught how to read so that even she can contemplate the mysteries of the divine what an incredible invitation
2: absolutely Mm -hmm. and how important that education is because you know with something as uh all-encompassing as as, is scripture Mm -hmm. it can really be abused and little parts of it can be lifted out uh and it can be used as a tool for all kinds of bad things Mm -hmm. and that certainly has happened throughout history uh During the Civil War, sermons were given that were pro the South and all of the South's agenda. And right across the Mason-Dixon line, other sermons were preached that said virtually the opposite. So scripture is by itself separated from an education, uh, potentially a dangerous thing. Mm Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think, too, it was important when we read, um, so another thing that we're reading is Roger Olson, his Mosaic of Christian Belief, and students read this chapter on the different approaches Christians have taken to Scripture. And I think one of the things that's a little difficult for some of our Protestant students to understand is that for Roman Catholics, there isn't a choice to be made between Scripture and church authority, that in fact, the church authority has been an important tool of interpretation mm-hmm. and has been a faithful tool of interpretation. And so while Lutherans stress the need for the choice, and then in, the, in that um, context, scripture has to be the authoritative, like Roman Catholics don't see it as a choice, at least according to Olson's mm-hmm. depiction of it. So that was interesting as mm-hmm. well.
0: Yeah. And I think his depiction is slightly simplified, as historical theology textbooks have to be. Um, but definitely emphasizes as well the fact that tradition also helps to give us what our scriptures are and so these absolutely the scripture and tradition aren't fighting against each other they're they're
2: ideally working together it's a good reminder for protestants because sometimes there is this oversimplification that tradition is bad scripture is good but it's important to remember that scripture is the byproduct of tradition mm-hmm. there wasn't really a comprehensive list of what scripture was until 325 mm-hmm. and really the the first exclusive list of the same books of our new testament wasn't given until 367 in uh, a letter by athanasius so Mm -hmm. um so we have to at least acknowledge humbly that scripture is the byproduct of tradition and certainly we can still believe that the holy spirit oversaw that Uh, but then erasmus has a really good point if the holy spirit did oversee the process of canonization would the holy spirit then just quickly jump ship and no longer guide uh, the reading of of that canon
1: right well, <laughs> and he's got that great little sort of uh, rejoinder to Luther he's like, well, you know maybe the Holy Spirit spoke to Luther, but then we've got all I mean we've got this whole other group of people oh, I don't know martyrs and other church fathers who led, led exemplary lives we think the Holy Spirit wasn't speaking to them mm-hmm. and what do you do when multiple people say they do have the Holy Spirit guiding them to different interpretations? How do you make the decision? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was probably good for people to read,
0: good for me to read. It seems to have been good for them to read because my students have been—I don't know if yours have—been talking about the fact that they're discussing this in their dorms at night. They're deeply troubled by certain things. They've been debating predestination and wondering about interpretations of scripture. This this material seems to have a pretty profound impact on our students.
2: Absolutely.
1: Well, and one of my students said, I think she even went on Facebook to just query people in her little groups, like, do you believe in free will or not? (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if she got a satisfactory (laughs) response, but at least, uh, yeah, they're talking about it, Mm -hmm. which is fun. But I think that's also the context of interim. Like, this is what you do in the snow and cold of Minnesota when you're living truly in a community. Mm
2: -hmm. Absolutely. One of the themes that is easier to pick up perhaps with Luther than some of the others is the way in which personal life experience can inform theological conclusions and so Luther has this you know he he is really bothered by his own sin for for one thing he also has a very scary episode in a storm for another and his personal life experiences are you can see them in between the lines of his theology he talks about that the only way to get peace is to accept this idea of passive righteousness. That a soul will be tormented without it. Um, his certainly was, uh, but I think from that we can extrapolate. You know, to what extent does our own experience inform our theology? And some of those conclusions may be universal. They might be universal. Uh, or they might be particular mm-hmm. uh, and maybe that's a question students need to ask with with Luther were his conclusions universal truths about scripture that actually opened it up or did they speak to Luther for his you know troubled soul mm-hmm. uh, and maybe they might be true but potentially not true for everybody in the same way as it was for him
1: mm-hmm. Well, I always feel like too there are certain students who come to appreciate that at least the medieval church gives uh, Christians a certain uh, channel for their energies. Like if you are trying to figure out what to do as a Christian, the medieval church provides very clear direction, and sometimes uh, that's sometimes just a relief. Quite honestly, mm-hmm. like okay, this is what I do.
2: Especially when you know there's plagues and wars right. and death is you know, potentially right around the corner. We know a lot about PTSD now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just think back, I try to imagine uh, the 16th century and I figure probably almost everyone had PTSD. Almost everyone (laughs) knew, right? In some capacity. I mean, everyone knew plenty of people who died and in our society and culture, when one person dies, it is very traumatic. Uh Um, When someone dies suddenly or young, Mm -hmm. it's very traumatic. But here we're talking about a culture where the infant mortality rate is high. People don't live that long because of sickness and battle and all all kinds of reasons. And in the light of that uncertainty, having a church tell you that though you have no control Mm -hmm. over all these things in your life, you can show up for Mass, you can confess, you can partake, and you can have some peace. That was probably a beautiful thing mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of people, and maybe not s- such a bad thing uh, as Luther might have us believe.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah.
0: Okay, so I know we said we weren't going to talk about Henry the Henry the Fifth today, because we're we're about, but we're about to shift into that. And I just was suddenly well, thinking, and, I really yeah. want a theologian's take on oh, right. It's it yeah. may seem to some of our so for our listeners out there we are now sort of shifting from Reformation theology into Henry V. And it may seem like an odd shift, um, but these things really are connected. And I was wondering if our theologian would comment on that.
2: So this is, I believe, my ninth time teaching. Right. uh, You're more of an expert than we are. And I'll tell you why I love Henry V. So it's a play that's written in 1600, or thereabout, about events that happened in the early 1400s. So the Battle of Agincourt, I think, is 1415. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's kind of, it's kind of like Shakespeare's Hamilton, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's commentary on political issues and theological issues in the year 1600, but is using historical events to present them to his audience. And so the amazing thing is that this is now post-Reformation. This is Post John Calvin, this is post Council of Trent, this is post Henry the Eighth, and now we have Queen Elizabeth on on the throne, and England has been thrown into turmoil because of religious changeovers, and then you have Shakespeare writing, and he's making this incredible critique. Uh, it's not explicit because it's in the lines, but the the play starts with. Two clergy people essentially conspiring and convincing a king to go to war. So before we even read the play, you know, before we get to act two, we know that Shakespeare is addressing uh, war and the church. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not a positive light no. that it gives. And the other thing is, you'll notice again and again and again that Henry talks about God being on his side, that you know, if the Lord wills, after they win of the great battle, he said it was God alone who did this. Uh, perhaps this is tongue in cheek, uh-huh. and um, and this these are questions that probably wouldn't have been asked if it was written before the Reformation, uh-huh. with a kind of liberty to write them that probably wouldn't have existed before the Reformation.
1: Yeah. Well, and Dan Ritchie lectured on um, Henry V this morning and talked a little bit too about how during Queen Elizabeth's reign, she ends up sort of advocating um, a more compromised approach to religion. And yet she herself is the subject of multiple assassination attempts. Mm -hmm. Um, There's wars, there's uh, the potential of military coups. And so even though she creates some stability in terms of the religious question – She's clearly, clearly not, uh, you know, sort of a stable figure herself on the throne. So right. mm-hmm. very interesting.
0: Yeah. Things are very unstable once you hit the Reformation, especially in England. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Do you then, it sounds like you kind of have a more cynical reading of Henry V's character in the play. Is that uh,
2: true? That's probably fair to say.
1: Sure. And will your students, uh, what what act will your students perform? Act five. Oh, so you have the great conclusion.
2: The great conclusion, yeah.
1: Mm. <laughs> well, I suppose we could kind of give it away. So, like, what's the high point of
2: your act then? Well, the high point is probably probably when Henry and Catherine kiss uh, or don't kiss. Bethel students, you don't have to. Um, <laughs> but that's probably the high point, and that's kind of like the movie high point. Uh-huh. And so talking about a cynical approach – I already gave one idea of why this is a cynical play perhaps. Another one is that Henry V, you know, gets all this territory in France, essentially wins, and then the epilogue says that he lost loses it all after he dies. So England doesn't keep the land that the whole play is talking about acquiring. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of cynical. Yeah. But then a third cynical thing is that the king is i mean he is a warrior he's a conqueror he is spilling blood he he's going into a territory and claiming it and then there's this big love scene you know where he has to woo the princess mm-hmm. and then he does and they kiss and they fall in love and it just seems it seems rather ironic because at the beginning of that act it's just a negotiation mm-hmm. it's it's written in the terms she has no choice as women back then didn't. Mm -hmm. And so she has no choice. It's already been decided. They will marry. And then there's this scene where he has to woo her. On the one hand, it could be read that Henry is such a wonderful person that he wants to woo her, despite the fact that he essentially owns her. But um, maybe Shakespeare's uh, making a commentary there as well.
1: Well, and I always view the women in Shakespeare's plays as having incredible amounts of power. So you sort of wonder, too, if Shakespeare's allowing for Catherine to be doing some political negotiation by way of that scene rather than just being wooed. I mean, the fact that she makes him woo her mm-hmm. might be sort of a statement as well.
0: Right. Gives her a bit of autonomy. But, you I know, know,
2: kind of taking a step back uh, with Henry V, one other aspect of humanities 2 that i really enjoy is that we spend so we spend a decent amount of time on this play we read it and reread it and memorize it and act it and watch it Uh, we spend a lot of time with this play and and then all of these themes start to come out we start to see it more deeply Mm -hmm. Um, and with every rereading or once you watch it at the end uh, you start to pick up on things even though you've read them. I think, just coming from a theological perspective, the same thing can happen with scripture.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We can immerse ourselves in it and we can rediscover and rediscover. Um, and I hope this is an experience for the students where they see that what we're doing is transferable. Mm-hmm. And by the way, not just a scripture. right? Uh, you know, I've taught, this is my 12th year teaching the humanities, and I actually do reread the books when I teach them. And I find different themes coming out, uh, different levels of depth in the works that we read in the humanities department. So we're reading, you know, the great works. I like to say it's like the Bachs and Beethoven's of of what's been written.
0: Exactly. And, uh,
2: and so these are the kinds of things that have uh, a lot of depth. And and probably should be Mm re-read.
0: Well, I think it's time for that question. That's right. So what is on your nightstand right now?
2: On my nightstand right now (laughs) is a book I started reading called uh, The Blind Spot. Um, Tell us more, Michael. I think the subtitle is The Hidden Biases of Good People, Hmm. written by a woman named, I hope I get the name pronounced correctly, but Mazarin Banaji. And Anthony Greenwald, and the whole premise is that uh, we have biases that we we we're not consciously aware of, and um, and this is sort of a way to examine what those are. And it's one of my favorite themes in uh, theology. Is and it's why I like Bonhoeffer so much. Bonhoeffer writes a lot about self-deception. And I think Christians generally would do very well to spend a lot of time sifting out and parsing what beliefs they have that are just acquired from the culture and their context and which beliefs and quote-unquote truths are really true. Mm -hmm. Um, So that... That is uh, that's why I'm reading this book. I just finished um, um, talking to strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Oh yeah, Gl- Gladwell is he's just such a fun read, uh, and that book very much did something similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, talked about why we're sort of programmed to believe people even when they're not telling us the truth, mm-hmm. um, and a and a lot more. But uh, so anyway, that's Sounds what I'm good. reading.
1: And Carrie, what's on your nightstand
0: right now? I'm working my way through. A reread of The Handmaid's Tale, oh, still Margaret again. Atwood. Yeah, so I just started that last week.
1: Understandable. And I just finished the Karen, was it Pryor Swallow, Swallow Pryor? I think it's Karen Swallow Pryor uh, on Reading Well, so I just finished. She's got this uh, collection of essays where she looks at the virtues by way of great works of literature. So the last um, essay is about the virtue of humility. Because, of course, it's the hardest one to achieve, right? It's the beginning of all the other virtues. And she uses Flannery O'Connor's short stories as a way to delve more deeply into what humility maybe looks like and different ways to think about it. And it's it's one of those books when I started it, I was like, mm. But as I've been reading essay after essay very, like, methodically, it's really grown on me. So I think at this point, my next book might be one of the books she mentions, um, I think is it? in the silence into the silence is this the one by the um japanese author oh just silence it's just endo silence. endo yeah okay because she uses that to talk about um i think faith mm-hmm. so well, that's um, worth a read that will be my next read well you've been listening to bookish
0: at bethel